Aristotle once said, in every act of doing, we are becoming. Every day, all of us make choices that shape and form us into the people that we are and the people that we are becoming. I'm your producer, Michael Moffat, and I want to welcome you to the Arate Way, a podcast dedicated to helping you become excellent in all that you do. Our hosts today are Walter and Stacy Nussbaum. You know, one of the most common questions I get from clients and friends all the time is, you know, Walter, do you have a book that you recommend or what are you reading or, you know, what's something that you would suggest that would be helpful? And I kind of thought on this podcast, you know, you love to read. I love to read. You know, we don't always read as much as we'd like, but we are pretty consistent mm-hmm. readers. And I thought it'd be kind of fun and, and, uh, and interesting to talk about some books that have been influential mm-hmm. in each of our lives. So I've got sure. three books that I chose that I want to talk about, and you've got three books. Mm-hmm. So I kind of thought we might just kind of go back and forth and share a little bit about what is it about each of these books that we enjoyed, and why would somebody want to read them? So you selected those books uh, because they obviously have made an, uh, a pretty big impact in the way you mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. and then maybe the way you, um, you've changed some of your um, habits, mm-hmm. maybe, right? Sure. We're going to find out. It was uh, honestly hard to, to uh, narrow it down to three because there are so many that have been impactful and so many that um, I could recommend. So it was kind of tough to come up with the top three for today. Yeah, yeah. And we say top three, but that doesn't mean these are the top three of all time that we've read. Right. These are, these are just three books that have made an impact. Right. And so we just want to kind of talk about these and if people are looking for some good information that's going to make an impact in their lives professionally or personally, I think they're going to find these as good resources. Mm-hmm. So let's kick off with my first book, and then we'll do your book, right? Which, ashamedly, uh, I still have not read. You've not read this first Even book? Even though it's, it's on my list, yeah. yes. This is just a wonderful book. It's called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. He's a philosopher. And, you know, the essence of this book, which is so wonderful, is that we end up taking on the behaviors that we take on because there's an affection we have for them, that we become the things that we do. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you are what you love. So I do those things. The reason a person sleeps in is because they love to sleep in. And you are what you love, which means the more a person sleeps in, the more they take on those habits, they actually become more of the kind of person that um, might be lazy. Mm-hmm. might procrastinate things that they should get up early for and do. A person who gets up early and disciplines themselves to do that and becomes productive, eventually they become that type of person, right? Do because, they love it, though? I'm curious. Does it, can it be the opposite where you, if you develop those habits that you hate, like getting up early, <laughs> if you do it enough, do you actually love it? Well, let me ask you a question. Or When you first started you know, spending time with me and getting me to try to run. What was that experience like? Did I love mm, running? It was pretty grumbly. <laughs> pretty grumbly, yeah. And what percentage yeah. of the time would I say, I don't want to run? Yeah, probably 80% of the 80%. time. 80%. We'd yeah. go on vacations and you would always say, yeah. hey, do you want to go for a run? And I'd say, no. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to go to the gym and lift weights yeah. and work out, but I didn't want to run. But now I actually enjoy running. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and why have I come to enjoy mm-hmm. running. What did I start doing? You started doing it and making it a part of your life. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that's one mm-hmm. of the main principles that he talks about is how do you develop what he calls a new affection? Mm-hmm. If there's something, if you're not a reader, but you want to 
but you want to love to read. You're not a runner, but you want to love to run. Right. Right. What do you have to do? And he basically talks about, number one, you need to see the value in it. Mm -hmm. If you don't see any value in it, you're not going to make it a part of your life. The second thing is, is you got to find somebody that's a model for you, someone that you admire, someone that you respect, someone mm -hmm. that you would love to emulate. Mm -hmm. And number three, you got to practice it. Mm -hmm. Now you've got to do it. And if you do those three things, Smith says that you eventually, it will become an affection, something that you love. So for me, I knew the value of running. You know, I had some elevated blood pressure, right? I started maybe putting on a few extra pounds I didn't like. Um, I liked running because it made me feel good. It made me feel healthier. You were my model, to be honest. I didn't run with anybody else. You were my model. And I watched you get up early in the mornings and run. You and, sure? Yeah, I did, yeah. And you were training all the time. And then I just started running. Yeah. And guess what? Yeah, now you love to run. I do love to well, run. Well, yeah, you yeah, do. I don't yeah. run your distances. Yeah, I mean, you, you just ran a half marathon last it. weekend, right? But um, I enjoy running. I'll go run three miles or four miles. You know, I don't run long distances, but I love it. So, so you could add to that list then maybe sacrifice. You have to be willing to sacrifice, at least in the short term, in order to develop a new love. So yeah. for me, getting up early, mm. really early to work out is really challenging for me. And I haven't found that place of loving it yet but yeah. i will say that i got up this week with nick who gets up you know every day at whatever five o'clock to go work out and rode with him yeah and um i actually felt really good that day the whole day and i got up at five and we rode at six and yeah. i actually felt really good so would yeah. you say that you see the value in getting up early you understand oh, sure. the value sure yeah. i see it i think i just haven't been willing to make the sacrifices right. to develop that new but habit see, i think what you just said is exactly what he says in the book and that is that when you were doing it by yourself it was really hard mm -hmm. but when you had somebody like nick who was getting up early mm -hmm. you wanted to meet nick you wanted to get out there and go for an early ride yeah and that is when you have somebody that you're modeling yourself after mm -hmm doing it with that makes a big difference so yeah i think true. what we would that's tell true. people is listen if you want to take on a habit mm -hmm. that you're going to eventually love to do if you want to be a reader get in a book club get mm -hmm. in a book club with other people mm -hmm. right you know what the value is going to be of it get in a book club where you see other people doing it and then start just a little bit every day maybe read two yeah. or three pages well your day. 10 minutes a day principle of reading 10 minutes a day i think is an incredible um, goal to shoot for even if you do that you know at least it's in your mind it's something that you're that you're thinking of right that's right and 10 minutes a day really is very small in the big picture but yeah it's I think a, a good example for you would be reading you've become mm -hmm. much more of a reader you enjoy reading more yeah, now because than of your influence. You 10 years mm -hmm. ago mm -hmm. that's true yeah and it's because it's you... because I see you reading 24 7 <laughs> and we have stacks of books all over our house yeah you can't help but grab a book well but you've become someone yeah. who really enjoys reading. And when you don't read for a while, you kind of feel bad about not reading. Like you feel like mm -hmm, I need I to. I do. I miss it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you miss it. Mm -hmm. See, that's a great word. It's not just you feel bad mm -hmm. about it. You miss it. Mm -hmm. And that means what do we miss? We miss those things that we love. Mm -hmm. So the title of this book, You Are What You Love, I think is a very powerful and relevant title because there are many habits that people would say, I wish I had that habit. Mm -hmm. So the best thing you can do is to make sure you can turn a habit into a love because when it becomes a love you miss it when you don't do it mm -hmm. that's when you've got a great set of habits in your life because now they just become a part of who you are as a person right right so that's my first book if people have not read you are what you love by james k A. smith 
I would highly recommend this book, particularly the first probably five chapters. He really builds the case. He's a philosopher, so you kind of have to chew slowly some of the things that he talks about. Mm -hmm. But it's rich. So it's not a light read. It's not a light <laughs> read. It's not. I would not yeah. say it's an introduction, an introduction necessarily, but it's a rich read. And if you can be patient and just read a little bit at a time, I think you'll find some great strategies mm -hmm. on how to build some new habits mm -hmm. and new loves in your life. So, where did that, you hear about this book? Do you remember? I was in Wichita, Kansas, and I was at a bookstore called Eighth Day Books. I remember that. We have a picture uh, of you in the oh, parking lot in front that's of that right. bookstore. You went with me one yeah. time there. Yeah. And the guy that owned the bookstore asked me if I've ever heard of this author. I said, no. And he said, well, you've got to read this book. And I picked it up. And honestly, I've been through it multiple times now. It's such an inspiring read. So, um, Okay, it's on my list. It's on your list. Good. All right, that's my first one. What, what book would you put, uh, did you put on your first uh, one? My first one is uh, An Elegant Defense by Matt Richtel, who was a um, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist for the New York Times. And oddly enough, we were, um, during the pandemic, um, at our niece's wedding, Elizabeth, up in Boston, and we were at the Harvard Bookstore, which was such a cool bookstore, remember? I do, it's great. And um, I just was kind of perusing and just... Is that where you found that book? Mm -hmm. At the Harvard Bookstore, mm -hmm. okay, cool. Yeah, so the, the title kind of intrigued me in light of all that we've been through with our son, Josh. You know, you just told everybody that we were traveling during the pandemic to Boston. <laughs> Not sure we should Guilty. have said that. Okay. It was our niece's wedding. We couldn't miss it. We wore a mask. We, <laughs> were, we were careful. We did. Okay. Even during the wedding, we wore a mask, right? So what? So tell me about the book. What is so, the book about? Um, so this book is just kind of about the delicate intricacies of the immune system mm -hmm. and just how um, how it's this this fine balance of trying to find homeostasis and how sometimes the immune system is not sometimes always the immune system is looking for invaders and recognizing, you know, friend or foe. And sometimes it, it makes a mistake and mistakes friend for foe. Mm. And so um, it talks a lot about just the whole idea of um, the impact of stress and fatigue, aging, um, obviously genetics, um, even just um, being overly hygienical can affect the immune system, yeah. especially in our society today. And um, a great example, just autoimmune disorders, that we have a real high prevalence of autoimmune disorders in the United States. And um, it's that example of the body, you know, mistaking um, a friend for a foe. Yeah. And right. so then it attacks itself. And so it's just this fascinating kind of um, a picture of these case studies. He takes four case studies and kind of unfolds them and their, and their experience and um, a couple in particular where he talks about um, HLA, you may have heard of that, it's the human leukocyte antigen. And so it's kind of like... Um, Could you say that again? That sounded really smart. <laughs> human leukocyte antigen. Okay. So he, he, he um, in particular, um, unfolds this story about an HIV AIDS patient and how uh, there are particular individuals that carry this HLA. And um, it's kind of a... Um, it sends the message to the body, um, to the immune system, this particular gene that certain people have. And it, um, it has this kind of unusual, uh, mysterious um, messaging that it sends that keeps them from developing the same kind of symptoms and the same digression as you know, someone else that's experiencing their same virus, the same cancer, the same disease process. 
And so it's kind of an enigma to scientists on why is it that, you know, there's certain people that have this and they're kind of like known as kind of super, you know, people. Super resistors. Right, super resistors. And so, um, you know, in light of all the, again, you know, one of our kids has an autoimmune autoimmune disease. And so to me it's fascinating just considering, you know, the factors that contribute to that um, and just kind of uncovering, you know, their immune system. And it's not just, it protects us, obviously, but it also can really harm us. And so, you know, I found it completely fascinating. It was interesting that once uh, Josh... What um, was determined to have ulcerative colitis, an autoimmune disorder, how many people we began to realize also had autoimmune disorders, mm-hmm. right? They're mm-hmm. f- pretty common. It's very common. Sadly, you know, um, I'm ashamed to say that I probably didn't give much credit to autoimmune disorders before my own child was diagnosed. I just kind of thought, what is that, you know? But, you know, when you experience it and you find out about what it really means, you yeah. know, you realize how, really happening. Right. Right, how serious it really can be. And right. yet, you know, the, the whole goal after we you know, found a, a doctor that was an um, alternative medicine doctor that could really help us was to get Josh back to homeostasis, not yeah. just to medicate his symptoms, but to really get the body back to homeostasis. And so, yeah. you know, thank to goodness. To strengthen the immune system, not right. weaken it necessarily. Right. Yeah. No, that's good. So who, uh, um, who would want to read that book? Honestly, I mean, we, we have a son who has autoimmune disorder. Is, is that, would that be a good book for anybody just to understand the immune system? I mean, I've not read the book. Mm-hmm. Is it a, is it a good introduction to the immune system? Cause I'm sure that's a fascinating system to learn about. I think it's fascinating. I mean, obviously you have to have an interest in science and health and wellness and that sort of thing, but it's not an easy read. I'd say it's, it's something that you kind of have to take your time to work through but I think it's a real eye-opener for all of us yeah. because, we, you know, we don't really take into consideration all the things that we're doing and all the things that we have done in the past that are, that are really affecting that, even right. for our children, for, you know, friends, family members. Yeah. And so... Obviously, it was very mm-hmm. personal for you because of our family. So, uh, okay, that's great. I love it. That's a great... An Elegant Defense by mm-hmm. Reichtel? M- Matt Richtel. My, Matt Richtel. Matt Richtel. Okay, terrific. My next book um, is a book that, man, it's a long one. But I would say this might be one of the top five books I've read. This book you refer to countless times. I always hear you referring to this book. I do, and there's so much to refer to it. But it's a book called Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. And uh, this is just a wonderful book. It's one part poetry, one part philosophy, one part uh, science and history. It's just a brilliant book. I mean, the fact that a guy can write like this is amazing to me. The opening line in the book sums up the whole book. I love when an author can take an entire book and sum it up in one quote at the beginning. That I believe is his own quote. And it says this, Wind extinguishes a candle, yet energizes a fire. When you think about that, right, what is wind to a candle? Is that its friend or is that its foe? Both. It, it can be both. But if it stays a candle, what is wind? it would be its enemy because right. the candle doesn't have enough substance or energy to survive the wind. So if you're mm-hmm. walking with a candle, what do you have to do? You have to cover it. Mm-hmm. You have to cover it. Mm-hmm. You have to, everywhere you go, mm-hmm. protect mm-hmm. it. And see, there's some things that are fragile. The candle is fragile in the wind, and so you have to protect fragile things. Mm-hmm. And this is what he talks about. There's fragile systems everywhere that you have to protect. Mm-hmm. Your fine china goes in certain places in your kitchen that no one has access to except for special times of the year. 
Uh, babies, infants are fragile. You do everything you can to protect them. But then there are things that are robust, things that have greater resilience to stress. And you don't have to protect them as much because they can take a lot more stress or disruption. And they're going to be just fine. It's like a, a plastic cup getting knocked over on the ground. It's going to just bounce, right? You don't have to worry about that. Um, that infant is going to become uh, an adolescent or a teenager who's going to be able to take a lot more hits and fall and scrapes, and it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. But it's that third system that's, that he talks about. That's the name of the book, anti-fragile systems. These are systems that actually only get better because of the wind. Right. That if it's not for the disruption and the chaos in life, no, no growth. They, there's no, no growth. Yeah. And he says the tragedy is, is when you take an anti-fragile system and you treat it in a fragile way. So you take a parent. Parenting is an anti-fragile system. It's meant to be disruptive to the child in order for them to mature. But what happens if you have a parent who does everything they can to minimize and mitigate disruption and struggle in the child's life? What do you do to the child over time? It cripples the child. They never learn to struggle. They never learn to struggle well. They never learn to overcome obstacles. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So then when they're mm-hmm. launched off into life, mm-hmm. life doesn't care. They crumble. Yeah. Right? Because now life isn't playing fair and they've never learned yeah. to grow through the disruption. So this is just a brilliant book. I've used this so many times, as you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is why you know, the only way you grow physically in the gym is by pushing your body to its limit so right. that when the body recovers, it's stronger. it comes back stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Incidentally, the immune system, right? How does the immune system grow sure, sure. or get stronger? Yeah, by being exposed yeah, to illness, viruses, so forth, so it can become stronger next time it faces that same. Right, yeah. So you get a parent who protects their yeah. child from ever getting sick. You can't go outside. And, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't go play with your friends. And everything is germ-free. And what you're doing is you're creating the conditions for that child to become very vulnerable later in life because the immune system isn't strengthening and getting better. So this whole past 15 months of social distancing and not shaking hands and not hugging and wiping everything down, I think it'll be interesting to see in a year or two from now, will there be any kind of residual mm-hmm. you know, uh, after effects right. in terms of sickness that comes from the elimination of germs from our lives? Right. Pretty it's a fine balance. I'm sure. I'm sure there are some effects. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think it's true in relationship, too. I think it's true in marriage. I think we have this idea that um, struggle in marriage is always bad, right? And it's scary, and it makes people want to give up, and it makes you feel hopeless. And yet, if you can come through it and come to the other side, it's actually the very thing that forges you closer, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think you and I would agree arguments, of which we will occasionally have an argument. Um, (laughs) Arguments force you, if you want a good marriage, Mm -hmm. to learn to resolve things better Mm -hmm. and quicker. If you don't, it deteriorates. But arguments are the condition. That's the wind. Right. right? That's the disruption. So then now it makes you, if you want a great marriage, you have to go to the other person eventually and say, listen, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the way I handled myself. And it forces you to become more humble, more courageous, to, to have conflict more effectively. Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That is true. But I think that you have to have a, a certain kind of framework that you see it through so that you don't 
uh, feel that, oh, I married the wrong person, or we're just incompatible, or he's never going to understand me, which we've all experienced at one time or another, right? Yeah. Um, but realizing, you know, it's the very thing that's Strengthens. making you better as hard as it is. It makes you yeah. stronger. Yeah. It makes the relationship healthier. If you can stick it out. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Listen, when yeah. you hear couples say, we never fight, we never argue, well, that's the equivalent of saying we're never growing. Because you're not having to grow with patience. You're not having to grow with conflict resolution. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this applies in every area of life. It applies in our health. It applies in our relationships with each other. Uh, it applies to the random events in life. How do you deal with misfortune and mm -hmm. suffering and setbacks? It's either going to make you weaker or you can choose to let it make you stronger. And that's not just a cliche. It's the way it works. Yeah. Right? I mean, you just got through, I know you hate talking about yourself, yes. but you just got through running, I said a second ago, your first half marathon in a very long time. Mm -hmm. You got away from the long distance training for a few years. And you told me as you were doing your training, what did it feel like to take a break for so long from long distance training? Oh, terrible. <laughs> yeah, and the race was pretty rough. The rough race. In fact, during the race, I said, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And yet... If yeah. people saw, uh, yeah. which I won't talk about, but if they saw how many races you've done, a half marathon, that would have been just par for the course for you. You've done a lot of races where you ran long distances and did long distance races. And yet this one was a challenge. I think the thing that's hard about it is that you, in the moment, because it's so hard, you feel like you just want to quit. Yeah. That's what I felt like. I just don't want to, I don't think I want to do this anymore. This isn't for me. I'm too old. Right. You know, but then you get a few days out right. and you realize, you know, that's what it means to not stop because you feel discouraged because right. you didn't do as well as you wanted or whatever, you yeah. know, just listen. stay in the course, like staying the course. Me. If you choose to not run again because that was hard, <laughs> that means you are a candle, right? To be the fire means, yeah. no, that's what that means. Yeah, I know. To say yeah. after a few days, I'm going to go back and do another race. That means you're being the fire. I, yeah. I'm going to let the wind make me stronger. And listen, anyone who's listening to this needs to realize that if you're working with somebody that's difficult to work with, if you're working for a difficult boss, if you're working in an environment that's highly stressful, you can quit, you can complain, you can do all those things and moan and groan about your job, or you can say that the wind and the disruptions that you feel are there to make you richer, better, and more mature as an individual. That's why they're there. And, and that's the value of this book to me, yeah. is this idea of making sure that we're pursuing, we're leaning into the wind. Which really flies in the face of everything that we see in our society today. I think mm -hmm. that we have strong messaging that says, just take care of you, make sure that you take care of number one. And, yeah. you know, it's not about taking the hard road, really. Yeah. Right? That's just old cliche. I just think that, you know, it's even more difficult with... Yeah kind of the society that we live in today to, I agree. to stay the, the long the long course. Well, that leads into the third book I did, but we got to get to your second book. Okay, my quick. second book is called Take Your Life Back. It's by Stephen Arterburn and David Stoop. And this book I read years ago, just got it off the Take shelf. Take Your Life Back. Take Your Life Back, okay. yeah. And it had an enormous impact on me years ago. But I realized reading through it again, I think I need to read this again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I mean, essentially, this book um, talks a lot about boundaries, developing stronger boundaries, 
um, identifying those things that keep you down, keep you from progressing forward, whether it be um, behaviors or, or your history. Oftentimes it's not just current behavior, but it's, you know, the past that you just continue to allow you to make the same decisions over and over again. And then it talks a lot about um, just the, um, the cycle, the destructive cycle of reactivity in life mm. and, you know, turning reactivity into responding no matter what the circumstance or the situation is. But because we're broken and we have this history and we have all these things that we want to blame it on that we keep doing that same thing over and over, you know, and that's been a struggle in my life, just reactivity. Mm. And so, um, you know, really kind of hits that. It talks about how um, the struggle of the authentic self versus the false self and how easy it is, it is for us to just live in the false self. And, um, Which is what? What is the false self according to the book? Um, to me, I think it's, like, it's a self-deception. Um, it's not really being authentic and who you really are because you're hiding because of whatever reason, guilt, shame, trauma. So it's like a mask you put so on forth. around people. Yeah, so we, you know, they kind of use the analogy of the fig leaf, you know, that you you cover yourself with a fig leaf. You cover that area that you're not proud of or that you're ashamed of. And and then you keep covering and covering and covering, and, and you're kind of living under this illusion that nobody sees, you know, that you're covering up those areas. But they really do, even though they may not understand it. And then it goes on to talk about how eventually... You know, you you become you come to the place of even covering your eyes, and so because you're so consumed with covering yourself with fig leaves, you can't even see what's around you anymore. You can't mm -hmm. see another person's hurt. You can't really fully engage because you're so busy about protecting your own image. Yeah. And you know, he he talks about. Um, it, it seems like just to interrupt for a minute. It seems mm -hmm. like that's the natural course of events for people is to. Is to I think cover so. it up. And why do you suppose that is? Why, why is it not more natural to be authentic? Mm -hmm. Why is it easier to cover up? Um, I think we don't really want to be seen because we feel people's judgment. We feel afraid. Um, mm -hmm. I think that we care way too much about what everybody thinks about us. He, he talks about this, that it's okay for not everyone to like you. Yeah, right? That's a hard one for some people. Yeah, it is hard. And that's been a hard thing for me. And so I think that just... Um, surrendering to the fact that not everybody's going to like you, and it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even so, today we were driving in the car, and you said to me, "I wish I had the ability to say no <laughs> without quicker, feeling bad without about feeling it. bad about it." Yeah, that's what you said, and you have gotten yeah. better about it, but you yeah. still feel yeah, that's that true. Way. A girlfriend at work texted me and asked me <laughs> if I could work for her and switch days, and I knew that I really, I, I really yeah. couldn't. But it took me about twenty minutes trying to figure out: could I? Maybe I should. Oh, right. I can't. No. You know, and and ultimately I said no, which is yeah. good. But, you know, just the mental gyrations that I even go through. Yeah. So, you know, in a nutshell, I think this book is about finding freedom, freedom from yourself, mm -hmm. um, freedom and authenticity, um, freedom from hiding. Um, it's really good. Yeah, one of the best for yeah. sure. I like the title, Take Your Life Back, yeah. because that's where living yeah. is done. It's the authentic, honest self. Yeah. Not hiding behind an image. And I think to take your life back to me, like I, the cover is actually a puppet with strings, mm. you know, and it's kind of this concept of, you know, your life isn't hijacked by someone else or your family or whomever, the relationship that you're in. Yeah. And just the idea that, you know, only you are responsible for taking your life back. Nobody yeah. else is. Nobody's to blame. This book is really yeah. for everybody then. 
yeah. It's, it has yeah. a universal application. I don't care who you are, business, mm -hmm. personal, mm -hmm. this, what, what they're describing, everybody goes through. This is one of the first books when someone says, what book would you recommend? It's one of the first that I recommend. Yeah, take your yeah. life back. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, my third book, um, and you know that I've been a fan of this book too, uh, it's a book called A Failure of Nerve mm -hmm. by Edwin Friedman. Passed away a number of years ago. Um, I love the title, A Failure of Nerve. The subtitle... I love a great subtitle, is Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. And the whole thrust of the book is that we live in a society where everybody wants a quick fix. You know, you've, you've had a, a, a really rough marriage for 10 or 15 or 20 years, and you finally go to counseling with your spouse, and you want the, the counselor to fix you as quickly as possible. Or fix them. Or, or, fix, the, or, or fix your spouse. And in three sessions. Yeah. And he talks about, you know, the, the, the world of the consultant. You know, a business gets into a lot of problems and they want to hire a higher gun to come in and fix this problem in three to six months. The reality is any real solution is going gonna, is gonna to take a long-term process that you've got to be committed to. And it's going to require nerve. The problem is, he says, people have a failure of nerve to do what's difficult because we live in a society, and I love this concept he talks about. We live in what he calls an emotionally regressed society. We are becoming more and more adolescent in our ways. Mm. And what is the hallmark of an adolescent or of a child? It's the inability to manage and tolerate discomfort. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Hey, you want to do that again? That's pretty good. <laughs> it's the inability to manage and tolerate discomfort. Yeah. And we have a word for people who can manage and, and tolerate discomfort. It's called maturity. And Friedman talks about when you start moving into a society, the pathology of immaturity as it grows turns into this emotional regression where people now begin to move into these herds and groups where now it's one group against another group. They kind of they feed off of each other to make themselves feel justified. They're all highly reactive. We've seen a lot of that this last year. We've seen a lot of it. That's right. And when you have an emotionally regressed society and you have a lot of tension that's going on, you're going to have people responding to it, not with maturity, but you're going to have it done with a lot of adolescent ways, a lot mm -hmm. of blaming, a lot of victimhood, a mm -hmm. lot of... Um, anger and rage and an inability to manage one's emotional self. And so Friedman does a brilliant job in this book kind of walking through the importance of having nerve, the ability to do what's difficult. You said a second ago, taking the easy road mm. versus taking the hard road. Mm -hmm. And that's what this book is about. To truly be a great leader, you have to have the nerve to make hard decisions, right? You've seen that in your own life. The best things in your life have come when you've taken the hard road. Isn't that true? Sure. And if you don't, it just gets delayed, and then it hurts even worse, typically. That's right. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So how many people go to a job they don't like? A lot. How many people are in a relationship that's challenging? A lot. How many people have to raise kids that it's very difficult through certain seasons of life, uh -huh. i.e. the teenage years? A lot. How many people are managing health issues that are just tough and all over them, right? Right. A lot of people. And yet you've got to have nerve to be able to rise above it and not succumb to it and become emotionally regressed and infantile in the mm -hmm. way that we manage the discomfort. Mm -hmm. So an absolutely terrific book. I highly recommend it to any leader or any person who's looking to really grow from the inside out 
as uh, as a person. Love I, it. I can't remember. Have you have you read this book? I can't remember. You know, I haven't read any of those books. Oh shoot. Have okay. you read any of my books? <laughs> I've not read any of your books. <laughs> we either. kind of we kind of are drawn to a different genre, I think, if we're really honest. Yeah. Right. What's I, what, the interesting? You're, you're, you're like up here. No, no, no. What's interesting <laughs> is there bit. really is there is a, an overlap in what we read. Yeah, there is. Right? There is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, a difference. We need to start sharing. You read one of mine, I'll read one of yours. That's a good how about, point. How about okay. that? Well, you're going to read You Are What You Love, you said, and I'll read I'd like to. Take Your Life Back. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. give me your third one. You got one more. Okay, and, so my third uh, one this is... this one, by the way, I gave to you. You gave this to me for Christmas. For Christmas. I was in a bookstore. Yes. I started reading it. I'll let you tell them what it is here in a second. And I read about 40 pages in the bookstore, was so enthralled with the writing style that I said, man... Mm -hmm. Stacy will love this book. So tell us what the book is. Okay, this book is called The Inquisitive Christ by Kara Murphy. Kara L.T. Murphy. Uh, she is actually a professor at Liberty University in the School of Divinity. Okay. She is a young mom of two little girls. Um, she is one of the most brilliant writers I think I've ever read. Wow. She is. And she's young. Yes, yeah, she's very young. She's really gifted. I follow her on Facebook, and she, her kiddos are so cute. But definitely worth picking up. Um, this book was different. You know, the whole idea of the book is um, Jesus asking questions throughout Scripture. So I didn't realize this, but there's um, Jesus asks over 300 questions throughout the Gospel. And so she goes through and highlights 12 of, you know, maybe her favorite questions that Jesus asks. Um, for example, um, one of them is, um, where is your faith? I think that's chapter one. And so she's talking about Peter and how Jesus is in the water and Peter's on the boat and he's summoning Jesus to come out or Peter to come out. And, and, uh, so Peter has his eyes fixed on Jesus. He begins to walk out and then he sees the water and feels afraid and he begins to sink. And then Jesus says, Oh, Peter, where is your faith? Right. And so kind of, she uses that, you know, kind of as the analogy of, you know, where is your faith? You take your eyes off me and on everything else, and then you sink as well, which is so true. Um, and then, let's see, one of the other questions I wrote down, um, why are you sleeping? Mm. This one was really good. Um, so she talks about um, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and how the disciples are there, and, and Jesus says to them, stay here. I'm going to go over here and pray. Stay here and stay awake. Mm -hmm. So he leaves, and then he comes back, and they're asleep. And he says, could you not just have stayed awake for one hour? Right. Can you imagine how they felt? <laughs> that was just so profound to me, just that question. So then he goes away again and asks them to stay awake, and he comes back, and they're asleep again. Yeah, yeah, they were tired. <laughs> and then a third time, yeah. he goes away, and he comes back, and they're asleep again. And yeah. then, of course, he's taken away to be crucified. But anyway, so, she, you know, she's just kind of uh, referring to just um, why are you sleeping as a society? You know, like we are asleep to the things of him, yeah, right? Because right. we're just kind of dead to spiritual things sometimes. Yeah. But my favorite one um, is, um, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? And that's chapter nine. They're all so good, but that one just really stood out to me, for me personally, because she talks about this idea of the sheep and the shearer, and how every year the sheep, well, multiple times a year probably, but the sheep have to be sheared, and how much they hate it. But by the time they have to be sheared, they are so heavy with their wool that they're restricted, like they can hardly move because the wool is so heavy, and it's kind of 
grown in so tightly that they're, yeah, that they're limited and they're miserable and they can't really move, but they would rather stay like that than be sheared because they're so afraid of being sheared. So then she walks through just kind of how the the shearer takes the sheep and it usually takes two or three people and they have to turn them over and the sheep's terrified and and then how the sheep, of course, gets sheared and looks hideous but feels scared at first but then feels free and then realizes once again, you know, that the shearer was right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so just kind of this idea that we live our lives like that, you know, with just so much stuff on us, but we so want to stay in that comfort because it's too scary to be sheared. The freedom only comes from wanting to be well. Yeah. Letting the process take its its course. Mm -hmm. And willing to be afraid and willing to be maybe hurt because it's painful apparently to the sheep to be sheared. It's a little bit painful. And so I just think it's a beautiful analogy of just what he wants to do in our lives and just the burden he wants to take off and we just want to stay shackled. So. Yeah, look, I mean, just reading that book, I think whether a person who's listening to this podcast is a person of faith or not, just the writing alone is inspiring, it's challenging, it makes mm-hmm. you reflect mm-hmm. about some real uh, uh, important issues in life. And, uh, you know, when you're talking about somebody like Jesus, who has literally what, probably the greatest figure in the history of the world, um, not probably, I believe he is, mm-hmm. to listen to the kinds of questions he asks just like I would want to know what any great figure, what are the questions they ask? Mm-hmm. You can know a lot about somebody by their questions. I think the idea of isolating 12 questions mm-hmm. that Jesus asks and then building a sense of, of, of life mm-hmm. and, and how to approach life from those questions, I think mm-hmm. it's a brilliant thesis of the book. Well, and I was just going to say, too, I think it's so Jesus. It's so, to me... Um, an example of how we could do better and how we do relationship. But, yeah. you know, if you think about it, he's asking the question to, to Peter, you know, where is your faith? He's not saying, oh, Peter, you're so faithless. You're such a dumbo. Right. You know, even though he probably thought that. But he didn't say that, yeah. you know. And he's saying, where is your faith? Yeah. Not you faithless, you know. Right. It's just he did it in such a way that made the person ask themselves the question and right. find their own answers you know, it's, he's really keen, I think, in the way that he did it that way. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's great. I think that's great. So if no, people have not seen that book by mm-hmm. Kara Murphy, um, uh, The Inquisitive Christ, absolutely just uh, a beautiful book. Uh, we could go on and on. I mean, mm-hmm. we just, we love yeah. books, not because of books. We might have to do another one of these because I was really having a hard time deciding between Which, several, you yeah. know, so we could do we'll this do again. Absolutely. We'll bring Michael out here. We'll do another one. And uh, talk about some other books. But here's the deal. The bottom line is that the beautiful thing about reading is that you get access to the reflections and thoughts of other people who have thought deeply and richly Mm -hmm. about things that we never have. Mm -hmm. And we get to sit, in a sense, kind of at their feet, reading their thoughts and their words and and get to reflect on them. They get to impact our lives. And so you and I have talked a lot to people about what are you reading? Mm -hmm. You know, and here are some great books to read. And so... During this podcast, we, we just love talking about great books, uh, not to make people big heads and look at everything mm-hmm. that we've read or what, you know, but because these are truly helpful books. Well, and I'm going to say this, and, and you can't say this because you're such an avid reader that it's like coffee to you. You know, you're just read. That's what you do. 
for me, reading has become a habit and something I've fallen in love with, but I still have to discipline myself because I always feel like I need to be doing, doing. But one of the things I will say, because there's so many people that we ask, and I'm guilty of it too, but that we ask, what are you reading? And they're like, eh, you know, I'm not really a reader, or, you know, whatever. Um, and I think that, you know, recently I've realized, because I haven't really been doing a good job reading in the last six weeks or so at least, and I realize just how much, how much I fill my time with mundane, silly things, Netflix. TikTok. What yeah. I don't do TikTok, okay. let's be honest. Never done TikTok. Yeah, okay. But, you know, I will watch Netflix or whatever. And not that Netflix is, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. We love a good Netflix series, of course. Yep. But just that 10 minutes a day, I mean, 10 minutes a day is nothing. Right. Right? Yeah. And so just how easy it is but how hard it is, you know, for those of us that don't have the natural gift of read like you do. Yeah. But I think that it's really just well, let's it's be a honest. habit. It's developing it, a habit. I developed it, too. I hated to read. That's part of yeah. my story, right? It's become something I love to do That's now. True. But look, 10 minutes a day. That's about seven to eight pages a day. You're talking yeah. over 2,000 pages a year. Okay. Yeah. That is about, that's 10, 200 page books yeah. a person will read if they just gave themselves 10 minutes a day of reading. Right. So, and this podcast isn't about getting people to read, although we would love for them to. It's saying, listen, if you choose to read, here are some great yeah. resources, some great books for you to read, very impactful, transformational. And if you're a leader, I'm a believer. Not, not all readers are leaders, but leaders are readers. Oh, I agree. And you've got to realize that because if you're a leader, you've got to have a reservoir that's deep of insight and wisdom mm -hmm. to pull from in order to really be effective in leading people. Absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. So I don't, if, whether you're a manager, a director, a vice president, it doesn't matter. Whoever you are, if you're a leader of people, leader of your family, you got to be a reader so you have a great reservoir to pull from. So hopefully this is a contribution to some ideas for them to read through. So, so before we start Nashville, our new Netflix series, okay, we're going to read 10 minutes. Or I'm going to read 10 minutes. Okay. You Deal. Could be, you could be my accountability partner. I'll keep you accountable on that. Awesome. Okay. Good to be back on the podcast yes, uh, Airwaves with you again. And we're going to be doing this again here pretty soon. And uh, Michael, we'll have you back in here with us. And... Uh, it's great to, great to be together again. Thank you. Okay. Awesome.